Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. This is Carmen Ando, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 71. On the show today, we have myself, Eric St. Martin, uh, Carlicia Pinto. Hi there. Brian Kettleson. Thanks for giving me enough time to unmute myself. I appreciate that. <laughs> and our special guest for today is Carmen Ando. Hi. Do you want to give everybody maybe just a little history about yourself, just to fill anybody in who's not already familiar with you? Uh, sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I am a build infrastructure engineer at Travis CI. Um, our build infrastructure team uses Go. I entered the Go community as, I think this is correct, Brian, tell me if I'm wrong, as the first ever GopherCon scholarship recipient in 2015. I don't that know if there were, uh, it is? It's, it's, it's kind of correct, yes. It was our, yeah? you were our first official scholarship recipient, but in 2014, okay. we did distribute money unofficially okay and, and right. helped people right yep so i was the first official but it sort of uh changed my life no i'm not being hyperbolic there when i say that and i haven't looked back um in terms of being a part of go uh community i would definitely love to hear how it changed your life it sounds uh, like it's such a delightful thing <sighs> Well, um, what what many people don't know, so I, I do have a degree in computer, what was back then called, oh gosh, they've changed the name now, it was 17 years ago, but I have like a computer science, but for less calories degree um, from my university, but then I didn't use it for, you know, like 12, 13 years, because I was a mom, and I went and had kids, and I did other things, and I traveled and followed my husband as he was pursuing his degrees to be a college professor, and then um, I kind of fell into at the university town where he was teaching. I fell into a sysadmin job with Windows sysadmin and, and kind of had to learn a lot of um, GUI, Windows Active Directory, whatnot. Um, and then I kind of went into Linux from there and then Bash. But I didn't remember a single thing about the C++, the C, the COBOL, the Java that I had learned. And I'm dating myself <laughs> um, in university so I wanted to learn a backend language and I just, um, self-teaching attempts failed. I tried uh, Python and I failed. I tried Ruby and I failed. But I finally, you know, uh, I think having gone to the Gopher, Con so I was at that time working for a startup doing things and it was on all Python shop. And I was kind of still struggling um, with Python, kind of grokking it, not quite. Um, but then I heard from a, a friend in the Ladies Who Linux community, can, do you want to come or are you interested in this new, um, this new language called Go? It's a systems level language. You might like it. And so I was like, well, I don't know anything. And they said, well, why don't you go to the conference? And I almost didn't go because I thought, well, 
you know, I, I don't know anything about this language, I, sort of, you know, imposter syndrome to the extreme, right? But then I went and I think what I realized was all the, uh, it, it took away any kind of the intimidation factor that you might have, right? I now met a community. I now went on Slack. I knew the people, people knew me. We had, um, I see, I saw how friendly and engaging and willing they were to help me. And so that was what it took to finally learn a backend language and learn it. Um, so that was just a lovely. And then that um, enabled me to, uh, you know, kind of put that on my resume. And then I, um, I got a, I got a, a role in, in the Travis build infrastructure team. So, yeah. Different trajectory for sure. That's awesome. <laughs> that, that's awesome in a lot of ways. You know, first of all, um, following your husband for stuff has to be a hard decision to make. Did you regret that? Did you feel like he paid it forward later for you? Did yeah. did your career come out okay? I mean, these are strong, hard questions, but this yeah, isn't, yeah. This isn't uh, you know, 2020. We're, we're doing the real deal here. Right. So this is an interesting thing that I talk about with women um, who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, right? This idea of, do you, you know, kind of follow your husband? Do you go your own way? Do you try to work it together? Um, and it's always going to be something that is going to hit women who also maybe are in, in thinking about starting a family and wondering what that's going to do. But I thought about it the way that I'm thinking about it. And of course, hindsight is 2020 because everything's worked out okay. But um, my husband knew what he wanted to do when he grew up, so to speak. We met in the university and he knew he wanted to be an architect and an urban, uh, urban policy and designer, but I didn't really know. And I really didn't, I didn't enjoy my computer science classes, my language classes, my systems analysis and design classes in college. So I was like, well, you know what you want to do. Um, so I once heard this, this parable of the base camp. Have you heard of this? I'll try to say it really quickly, but um, in the 1950s or 60s, uh, seven uh, European and American uh, climbers decided that they were going to go to Mount Everest and, and scale the summit of Mount Everest. And when they get there, they this was before the days of the Nepalese and Bhutan people um, providing assistance and um, lodging and whatnot. So it was um, the onus was on the climbers to set up a base camp. And so at the advice of some of the locals or other camp, uh, campers, they said, you know, one of you has to stay behind and tend to the base camp while the other, the other five of you or six of you uh, scale the summit. And none of them wanted to stay. So they decided they would try a compromise. They would get everything ready and prime everything uh, for the base camp and whether the food and everything. And so they would try to put out the provisions as, as much as possible. And then they would all come up together and then they would come down. So indeed, they all went up together. No one stayed down at the base camp. They reached the summit. No one died. And they come all the way back down, which is a feat. But what happens is when they get to the base camp, the water is frozen. The food um, animals have broken into the base camp and stolen all the food. And so they have no more energy to be able to recuperate, to get down to the very base of the mountain, because the base camp is probably about 20, 30% up. And so all but one die to tell the tale. And so the, it's a cautionary tale to say that, you know, if, if you want to scale mountains, you can't really do so without somebody tending to the base camp. And what I learned from that in the context of a partnership or a marriage or uh, what have you in any kind of relationship is that Yes, two of you can scale mountains, but one of you has to always try to do what you can to tend to the base camp. And so that has always resonated with me. Um, and so I, I kind of sort of thought, saw that as my, as my thing. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I kind of played at um, different uh, things in the interim while he did those things. And then when, he, when I finally found 
tech and just the systems administrative thing, whatever, I finally realized, oh, this is what I want to be when I grow up. And I was 33 at the time. And it was at that point where my husband said, all right, um, I will do what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I can to support you. And that's what it's been ever since. So yeah, that's how we've navigated it. And so now I have friends who are my age who kind of did the other way around. They they scaled their their mountains on their own and their their career, but now they're looking at marriage and maybe having children and asking about that and what will happen next. And so I guess the I can say it through hindsight, but everything kind of turns out okay. And you always have to kind of, you, you have to be very careful to not always be the person tending the base camp because then you'll be resentful of the mountain climber. And you also have to be mindful if you're always the mountain climber to uh, ask the base camp, do you want your turn? I don't know about you guys, but I'm crying. Oh my Aww. gosh. Seriously. <laughs> the, 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 just tears. I, I, need, I, I need that relationship. Thank you. And kudos <laughs> to you two for figuring that out. I was thinking this show is so awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that could have been like phrased any better. Wow. Yes, I I think I I relate to that personally. Um, it doesn't work when there are two people in, in a party and they're both climbing and there's nobody tending the base camp. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think traditionally women have felt the pressure to kind of do that and be that. But now we have we have we're in 2018 and we can feel like, you know, so, you know, more um, fraternal leave for for dads that's happening. And that is enabling them because, you know, there was this sort of mass what we call toxic masculinity about having to feel like you're the provider all the time. And um, and now if you if you feel like, hey, wait a minute, I want to be the dad and I want to be the stay at home parent while the other person is the wage earner. That is a pathway that is possible now. That is just it's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm speechless. There's nothing left to talk about. Thanks yeah. so much for coming on, Carmen. <laughs> we appreciate you so much. It's it's been a great show. <laughs> Funny. I feel like that was so much wisdom imparted. Uh nothing else is going to be as awesome as that. What, what can we <laughs> it's so funny because you know it was something that I heard and really resonated with me about, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe a little bit, maybe just around when my second and my third child were born. Um, and I, and I just, that was the thing that I kind of was like, okay. And I knew that when I found the thing that I wanted to do, that I was going to do it with all my heart and, and my husband understood, yeah, now it's going to be my turn. So. Wow. But you know what I particularly love about this story is that you honored yourself. You, you said you had the courage to just own the, I don't know space. You yeah. didn't just, I'm going to do something because I, I have to, I have oh, to. Oh, no, I did that. I did that, but I didn't go all the way into it. And so, you know, like before this, I worked in admissions and um, financial aid at a university. I read lots of applications. Uh, I was a national director for a nonprofit. I worked, I actually worked as a salesperson for a heavy metal radio station. That was a fun job. And I did yes. that because. Yeah, I know. Right. Go metal. Right. But yeah, I, I did all these things, but I did them with the spirit of, well, it's just what's going to help um, bring in a, a, some extra income so that my husband could go to graduate school or, or do his fellowship or what have you. But it was never done in the, oh, I really want to, you know, there was never anything like the way I do now, which is I want to get involved in the community. I want to help make things better. I want to go to conferences. I want to do all those things as I'm doing now for tech. So, but that, but that is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not saying I'm glad that you 
sat at home and ate bonbons all day, I, I, you know, so if, if it was great, but whatever you did, you didn't take it as, as your path. You, things uh-huh. that didn't resonate with you, whatever you were doing, right? there is no, no right answer, right? But you didn't say, this is my path for the, for, for the lack of a better option. For the, right. for the lack of an option that resonates with me. I love that. Well, I once gave a lightning talk at a DevOps days about four years ago, and I was trying to say, think about what I could say. And I always try to think about like the long game or the perspective, the deathbed perspective is what I call it. And what I realized is, is that our, our life expectancies are going to be longer, right? We're going to be living longer. And that means we're going to be working longer, but our time with our kids is going to be very short. And so they have this thing called the career rainbow, I think. And so they kind of, the, it's a data visualization, which shows how many years you're going to actively be engaged as a, in the workforce and how many years you're going to be actively engaged as a parent. And so that, the, that time frame to be actively engaged as a parent, which is what, like 18, maybe 20 years is far less than what we expect as, as workers, right? We're going to be in the workforce between 40 and 45 years. By the time I retire in 30 years is, um, you know, the average retirement age is going to be up to 75. So when I thought about that I was like, why, you know, there's no need for me to, to rush and to sort of get there and get there and get there. Like, you know, I'll find that and then I will contribute. So, and you know, now I I think I do, I have 30 more years of of work left. And so why, why rush? (laughs) Absolutely. What a great story. There's another thing that I read a long time ago. I can't remember whether it was like part of a book or something where it talks about like newer generations of people being in such a hurry to complete their life's work. And, you know, that the average age that people really kind of hit the peak of their careers is usually in their early 50s. Like, you know, if you look at most scientists and their discoveries and things like that, like, you know, like the the age of the Internet makes us feel like, you know, everybody's the 20 or 30 year old millionaire. But, you know, those are really the edge cases. Yeah. And it takes time to mastery, right? To develop mastery. And so I think a lot, like um, I once watched a talk by Bob Martin that um, sort of had this, uh, I don't know if where the source of the information was, but it was like in every five years, half of the people in our industry have five or years left, less of experience. Um, so I'm in good company, I guess I see, I, I should see. And, and I also would like to impart some life wisdom in, in addition to getting that technical mastery. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> everything you need. Uh, this is like the everything that you uh, need in life you learned in kindergarten right here yeah. from, from Carmen. <laughs> so awesome. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, to meet people who have sort of done things in reverse, because like you said, in, in the tech industry, it does feel like a lot of us focus on our careers first and then family. And usually by the time you have a career, like you're, you're all in and your family, whether you consciously do it or not becomes secondary and you don't really get the same valuable time you do when, you know, kind of pre-career and, you know, you're just focused on your family. Yeah. Well, I have a, so my Twitter bio, it, it, I have a, I have stories about it, but one of the stories is it, it basically says I can do many things. I'm just most needed in software right now. And the thing I think about with regards to that is that I have a, a, a set of life experiences that can be 
an asset to the community at large, right? So it's not necessarily my coding chops, but but some of the wisdom that I've had to gain and the hard knocks that I've had as a parent of special needs children, as a person who's worked in other industries, a person who has um, some of these perspectives um, that may complement someone who say may not have these perspectives because they just don't have as much life under their belts and, but maybe really understands, uh, you know, coding and, and whatnot. So there was a recent, um, blog that I read from a prominent woman in tech that said, stay in, uh, stay in engineering as long as possible because let's just, you know, because as a junior engineer, you're not, you're kind of expendable. You're not really that worth it. But I, you know, my, my response to that was maybe, but I never thought that way, you know, understanding that I, as a, as a junior engineer, quote unquote, had some very valuable things that I could give to the table. Um, and that, that more, more people that have diverse perspectives should and could uh, think that way. So changing the subject just a little bit, you, <laughs> well, that's not a bad thing. I wasn't, I'm not moving away from that same general topic. Right, right. Car- Carmen, you run um, Women Who Go New York City, or you're part of Women Who Go New York City, and also Ladies Who Linux? Right. So, gosh, you know, these are kind of, I should, yeah. So Women Who Go NYC was a chapter that I started with Jessica Weinberg at GopherCon 2015, where I was a scholarship recipient. And, you know, since then I've moved upstate. um, And so I've given most of the admin tasks to Jessica as well as Jonas. Um, So they're running things over there. And I try my best to get down to the city and participate as much as possible. And Ladies Who Linux as well, you know, it's in New York City and I'm no longer there, but I try my best to try to help uh, work with the community. I've I've shifted my efforts to Slack, um, the women who go Slack and try to offer um, like remote uh, pairing and remote code reviews for uh, a group of women. So so kind of like a remote uh, meetup group. That's really cool. Are you doing this actively on a regular basis or is it um, on a needed needed basis? So there are several people who have taken me up on my offer and I work with them individually in direct messages. But there, I started a, I, I helped start a black women channel. So um, there was a picture that um, Vladimir and Johnny Biscornet and Brian Lyles uh, shared widely at the last GopherCon, right, which, which sort of showed um, several dozen black men together. And it was just such a wonderful thing to show the growth um, in that uh, particular area of diversity. And then I tweeted, I was like, my goal is to have this same picture, but with black women for GopherCon 2018. And so we started a black women channel. And I we couldn't get everyone. There's so many people in different time zones. We have people from all the way from uh, European time zones all the way to California time zones. So a nine hour time difference to be able to agree on a single time. So I'm kind of mentoring two or three individually and kind of doing code reviews with them. But I, I think now, right now, I'm just going to say it right now in public, I'm going to revive that and see if we could do something in groups um, from here until uh, go for con. That's that awesome. is very cool. Very, very cool. Speaking of uh, uh, women who go to New York City, I was talking with Jonas just the other day, and there is a strong need for speakers at Women Who Go NYC. So if anybody has something great they want to share or something you want to learn and teach everyone else, uh, reach out and I can put you in touch. Right on. Thanks for that plug, Brian. Hey, I'm here all day long. (laughs) Yeah. 
So how about the the Go Developer Survey? There was uh, the survey just came out and lots of interesting news in there. Um, was there something that jumped out at you uh, for the developer survey that uh, you thought was unique or more interesting or maybe year over year specifically? Yeah. So, you know, the one thing that I always kind of latch on to is this inclusion question, right? Um, and, and I think about inclusivity because I have been a person who has maybe internalized that maybe I don't belong. And so it really does... Um, it's really more relevant to people who do maybe don't feel like they belong, whether that is true or, or only perceived, right? But one of the things I noticed in the Go, so um, I was asked by part of the Go team, because I'm on one of the working groups for Golang, hey, can you take a look at the survey and see if there's anything we should modify for the upcoming year? And so I looked at it and everything looked okay. And I didn't at the time see anything that I would change about it. But when the survey results came out, um, I kind of looked, took a closer look at the inclusivity question. And I was like, oh, these are interestingly worded things that I, I would like to see maybe we could discuss and see if we could reword some of the questions. Um, and this is, this is me. Okay. So I, I'll give you a little backstory. So, um, my son was diagnosed with autism when he was two. And uh, I've, I've talked about this in, in my Gotham Go keynote, but one of the things that I did to try to understand that was to get a master's in it. And my master's, um, did a lot of, uh, work with, uh, survey design and analysis. Right. And so one of the things that's in surveys is, uh, designer bias, whether we like it or not, right? So the perspective of inclusivity in a survey design is, by definition, you have to decide what is default and what is not default and why you would identify as an underrepresented group, because that was the nature of the question, right? So last year's survey, or the results of 2016, there were a lot of write-ins. So the, the, one of the things that surprised me was objection to the question as a write-in and I would love to speak to those 150 individuals and say, well, what is it that you object to? Is, um, do you object to the way that the question was worded? Do you object to the fact that the question was asked at all? Do you object to the fact that maybe there isn't a category or maybe the way that the multiple choice was put in? Like, I would love to speak at length further with them. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that um, about 33 to 37% in both years um, did not answer the question at all. So there was like, um, there was just a, you know, they just skipped it. So I guess there was an option. It wasn't a required thing that you had to choose, right? And so I would also love to know, well, that's interesting. One in three gophers didn't want to answer this question. Now, does that, do I, what kind of assumptions can I make there? Can I make assumptions that they just didn't think that this was something worthwhile to answer, um, you know, and, and why that is, or maybe again, you know, because one of the, one of the answer, or one of the things is I don't belong to, or I don't consider that I belong to any underrepresented group, whatever that might mean, right? I'm not going to make any assumptions. So anyway, so those are the two things in the survey in terms of inclusion that I talk about because we always talk, we always um, see about diversity and inclusion and I always focus on the inclusion and it's something that's not that's uh, sometimes hard to scale because um, belonging and inclusion can be intensely personal right so I've I've had talks with people who maybe don't feel included because they feel that they're of uh, older age right I've had conversations about that with some gophers right some also. Um, 
are part of a religious group that cannot drink alcohol or coffee. And so some of our conferences and meetups and events kind of, they feel a little bit left out or there's no alternate for them. Um, so it's things like that, that we maybe could include. But then again, there's like this whole idea of, okay, well then do we have to maybe just allow that ride in? But anyway, so I, I went and I, and I kind of looked at other tech communities, right? So there was the Stack Overflow user developer survey, right? And that, of course, gets far more submissions. But one of the things that they did that kind of created a stir on Twitter was that they asked the gender question and they didn't have any options for trans, non-binary or other gender minorities. So then the next year they included that and that helped those that uh, identify with the, the you know, non-gender binary um, feel included. And so I felt like we didn't have anything like that. And lo and behold, I went and I looked at the Rust survey because gosh, you know, like how many times every time we think of Go, sometimes we think of other languages and there's Rust. And, and for Rust, that was an option to check. And so we, I have some non-binary friends and coworkers. And I kind of said, well, how do they, without, I kind of scrubbed the communities that asked these. And I said, which survey uh, design or question do you like better? And they, they were like, well, I don't feel erased in the second one, meaning Rust. So these are just things to think about. And I don't know what the answers are, but I do know that I've you know, the, the thing that I've talked about is like, I remember walking in to go for con in 2015 to the core OS pre-party. Do you remember that Brian and Eric? Yeah. And I remember, I remember getting there and walking in and it was like 400 people in a room watching Redbeard talk. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> I, I, I could count only like five or six other women, may, maybe 10. And I, I, I know that, you know, there, there were a few women in tech at that point, but it, this just hit me and it just, it was a, it, like a, a visceral and emotional reaction. And I remember taking a picture, snapping from the back of the room and sending it to my husband and saying, oh my God, look at this. And my husband's reaction kind of gave me the perspective that I needed, which is welcome to my world. And the reason why that gave me perspective is because my husband's from West Africa. And so he is constantly reminded of his otherness in, in all the ways in uh, United States Northeastern academia right? As a professor, he's the only black professor in his entire division. And so I was like, Oh, okay. And I remember when he would take me to Ghana, or he would take me to some um, places in Brooklyn, where his family lives, and I would be the only uh, European or white, or, you know, I could say I'm Latina, but to them, I'm just white. <laughs> um, and I remember, I never thought about my whiteness until I was the only white person in a room. I never think about my womanhood, if you will, until I'm the only one in a room. And these are only just the visible aspects of diversity, right? There's also lots of invisible, whether that's mental or neurodevelopmental differences or religious or other things like that. So that's kind of the kind of the things that just uh, it just make me very interested and curious about when it talks about our community and, and these axes of inclusion and diversity and whatnot. So I love that we are 42 minutes into this particular recording <laughs> and we've barely talked about go and it's still one of the most awesome shows we've ever done. Really? Oh, absolutely. <sighs> I'm, I'm awestruck by your, your feeling of community and your dedication to the community and the people around you and just, wow. And just your ability to articulate it. Yeah. I'm sitting here in awe and with a lot of feelings and not knowing what to say next. <laughs> Just uh, processing everything you said. 
Yeah, how do you follow that up with with light go news from GitHub? You just don't. Yeah, I know. And it's funny because to to me, go is the hard thing, right? Coding is the hard thing. But to many others, it's these conversations and topics that are far harder. Um, so that's maybe what I could bring to the table. Um, but yeah, yeah, these aren't easy conversations to have. But what I do know is that every person that I've met in the Go community has just been so wonderful, right? And they've, they've, and I've been, have, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, especially about this idea of inclusivity and diversity and whatnot. And so I would just love to talk more about it. And I do feel, you know, I do feel that community is super important and it's what made me um, finally learn Go. You know, it wasn't the syntax and it wasn't the lo- small language footprint or a standard library. It was the people. So well, one thing that you said that is hitting me really hard personally is because uh, like you, I'm Latina and a woman, obviously. And, you know, going through the experience of college in the U.S. and getting a job in tech, it's, um, it's amazing how much of an outsider you feel when you don't have people who look like you, not just look like you, but sort of have the same background as you. It's so disconcerting. And you don't operate at full confidence. And not operating at full confidence shows. So you have to overcompensate somehow. You have to bring yourself up to task, right? And it takes years for you to feel like you're operating at a, at least to your uh, satisfaction, up to a level of like a most, mostly confident, but still you're not up there because you, when you step into another context where there are people like you, you contrast because you can see, okay, I am, I am myself. I'm completely confident in this setting. And then you step into a setting where there are, there are people like you. You're still, you're still operating at a high level of confidence, but it's not, you're not fully there. And of course, it helps to have people who are empathetic to that and maybe can approach and ask questions in different ways. So, or whatever it is that people need to do. I don't even know. Like... Maybe somebody can write a manual. I don't know. But um, it helps to, for example, in the Go community, people always trying to think about inclusion um, and working on, on those efforts. So just seeing that helps a lot. But it's hard. Indeed. There's so many dimensions to it too, right? Like there's the obvious ones that, you know, we're really prioritizing too, but even people just entering the tech field that are self-taught and end up, you know, at a company that are surrounded by people with formal educations and degrees, like there's like kind of an outcast feeling there. And then you add another one of these dimensions on top of that. And then it just kind of is, is a downfall as far as confidence goes. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And socio socioeconomic factors, um, geographic factors, right? I mean, there's so many, and that's why I, I still, you know, in, in, inclusivity is personal. It's intensely personal, and so you have to meet it there. And when I've met it there, I've often found more compassion than not, right? So that's what I what I tr- what I try to do. Well, it's, it's funny how many. Uh, tiny little things hit in 
in the inclusivity category, we were we were talking once at a, a job that I worked at about uh, hiring new people and requiring them to get their own credit card to do travel, personal travel. And that's a huge barrier for some people. Some people haven't had credit their entire life. Some people are young and they just don't have the ability to book thousands of dollars of things on a credit card because they haven't built credit yet. You know, There's lots of reasons why people might not have their own credit card. And that's a huge barrier to getting your job done if you're required. Good so point. So company-issued credit cards are a giant, uh, giant enabler for inclusivity, but it's it's something that people frequently just completely ignore. Very good point. Same thing with conferences, right? And I've, I've tweet-stormed about this before, but if you're going to give a diversity scholarship to a conference, I mean, I was pretty lucky. I got, um, I got uh, airfare and I got hotel, but I also had um, a person, you know, an, an income from working. And I also had a husband to support me to watch the kids and to, and I also could, you know, make my own per diem. But there have been people for whom, you know, attending any type of conference is a huge burden on them, um, and it's also a, a non possibility. So thinking about these things when we give scholarships, like in addition to a conference fee, in addition to airfare or travel, in addition to, um, uh, you know, a hotel or um, accommodations, you know, are we thinking about these other things? So socioeconomic, I think about that often and a credit card plays right into that brain. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of the tiny things that some people take completely for granted and others can't. Yeah. And that's, so I use a technical description to what all of this is about, especially when you say, um, Galicia, that you overcompensate. And that is when you look at a system, systems administrator view, it's called the people of the default, right? So in a default system, you don't need to worry about configuration, right? But if you were not default and you're a snowflake server, you're constantly having to compensate by adjusting the configuration, adjusting it and adjusting it and adjusting it. And that can be like, uh, but, um, True inclusivity and true diversity is where there is no default. We're all just kind of can, um, we don't have to assume a default and an other and no one feels othered, but rather included. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> very, very much. Yeah. So we should, I mean, it would be sad if we didn't get to talk a little bit about Travis. So tell <laughs> us about your work at Travis and and what you do and, and how you use Go if you're allowed. Sure, sure, Yeah. So I'm on the build infrastructure team and um, I'm one of the junior, I don't know, we don't use that language, so I, I'll stay away from it. But we um, we basically, if you've ever used Travis, um, whether you pay for it or you use it as part of your open source projects on GitHub, we, we try to give you an environment in Linux Mac that's going to um, be a clean slate every time and help you run your tests. And, you know, every time you push a commit or a push a PR, you can be confident that that, uh, that won't break the build um, when you finally deploy it to production, right? So hosted CI. And, and the, 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 the part that we work on are the, is the build environment and also the infrastructures that the build environment run on. So there's platform and then there's build infrastructure engineering. So I'm one of the people in the build infrastructure engineering. And the thing that I work on is the Mac recently. I used to work on the Linux part of things, but now I work on the Mac infrastructure. And the Mac is a special a special beast, if you will, because I, I can go on and on about it um, in terms of the engineering that's involved. Brad Fitzpatrick <laughs> does a somewhat similar thing to what I do at scale, but just for Golang. 
and sort of running the binaries of all the Go runtime versions uh, for the Darwin architecture. Um, so we do that at scale, and we use quite a bit of um, Go microservices to do that within the infrastructure. Um, and a lot of the Go microservices uh, help mediate or are levels of abstraction to mediate between the worker or the agent that we that runs the build and the hypervisor that we have to use, um, which is vSphere's uh, VMware. And the reason why we use vSphere, oh, why are you using vSphere? Why don't you just use Docker? We get that a lot in issues is because uh, when you have Mac um, OS X or Mac OS, if you will, you have to run it by, by, by license on Mac servers. You can't run it on Linux servers. And so all of the wonderful container ecosystem that you we have is no longer available to you. And so you have to get really creative. And, and sometimes it's frustrating because you can kind of see where Linux is, is kind of evolving um, in this in this space, the container ecosystem. I know Brian and um, and Eric work directly on this at Azure with Kate, but yeah, so so having to mediate that with multiple microservices and the vSphere API is, is a lot of, of what we try to do in, in our day-to-days for the Mac infrastructure. Um, and our worker agent, which is the largest code base at Travis, if you will, or the largest kind of one service, it's very mission critical, is also written in Go and all the backends for Docker and for GCE, all the different um, clouds, and as well as our uh, Mac cloud um, is written in Go. That's awesome. So to, uh, I guess, clarify, when you run vSphere, are you running it on Mac hardware? Yeah. So yeah, it has to be. Yep. Yep. And so there's, there's a new product coming out that we may try someday that, um, is it's KVM, uh, developers that left to try to develop a KVM like thing for, uh, Mac hardware, which would be awesome. And it would really help out the CI, the ecosystem for infrastructure and Mac. Which product is that? That's called, um, Anka, uh, A-N-K-A, and Virtu, V-E-E-R-T-U. So we'll see where that goes, and we're going to play around with it and see if that's something that would be viable. And then, you know, we could put it on Kubernetes (laughs) Um, and have us one one backend to rule them all. I've used Virtu uh, back when it it was probably a little over a year and a half ago. Virtu was a, a paid store, a paid app on the Mac App Store. And then they pulled it and made it open source and kind of abandoned it and moved over to Anka, which is their um, commercial version of it. But yeah, Virtu was a really good emulator, all based on the Beehive um, port of XHive in BSD, which does uh, virtualization kind of you're right at the at, at the KVM level. Right. Okay. So the, the, the same developers, I think, decided to kind of expand that and, yeah, make that more enterprisey. That's awesome. Yeah. Really cool. It was a, the Virtu app was really fast. It was much faster than Parallels and VMware at the time. But uh, last time I tried it months ago, uh, it was missing some updates that made it work well. So I, I think they've kind of left Virtu alone while they're working on the Anka thing. But that's good for you. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna, we're we're watching it and uh, we'll see what comes of it this year. That's really cool. So um, in 
kind of the docs that we were sharing, you mentioned that you kind of have a love for visual abstractions and kind of had some examples of things that you found particularly exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of one of the things that gets me that sort of was a barrier to my learning. Right. So people may debunk this or not, but I we we have a great capacity for visual learning. Right. And I've read books about this. And um, and if you think about all the things that we use in terms of language surrounding uh, computer and abstraction, it's it's languages that are tangible things. Right. Trees, graphs, uh, what have you. Um, and so I just love the idea of asking people this wonderful German word called Kopfkino, your head cinema. So what goes on in your mental cinema when you're talking about an abstracting thing, right? So, you know, I, and I would go and I, at last go for con, I asked a bunch of people this and I found some lovely curious answers that helped me dig and want to go and learn and find out more. But the one that really stuck with me is Rick Hudson. So for the Go community, they probably already knew who this is, but I will introduce him. Rick Hudson is one of the primary developers and architects of the garbage collector in Golang, right? And especially was the one that kind of completely redid and improved the 1.5 garbage collector. Um, so I asked Rick, not expecting this answer at all, but I asked Rick, Rick, what do you see in your Kupkino, in your mind cinema, when you think of the garbage collector? And when I asked other people, they would take some time to think, and sometimes they would say something, I don't know, whatever. But Rick was ready with an answer, and he said, a chessboard. And I went, tell me more. And he basically went on to say, when I was a young kid, I learned chess as different discrete pieces that had limitations in movement on a grid. And when you think about a garbage collector, that really could help you, right? Because different um, different operations um, and different phases in the garbage collector move along the heap up and down differently, right? So you kind of can look at the heap as maybe a, a single column chess piece, if you will, maybe, maybe multiple columns, depending on how many actors you have, right? But you have multiple actors and multiple um, things moving down a data structure of the heap. And that just, and I'm telling you all of this, not knowing what I knew then. Uh, sorry, what I know now, I'm telling you all of this because just hearing that from Rick, hearing that it was a chessboard, made me want to go learn more about the garbage collector, learn about its implementation, and learn just about garbage collection in general. Um, it just it was like it was like unlocking um, a, a beautiful thing for me. And I just ugh. and I if if I see Rick uh, at this year's Gopher Con, I'm going to just hang out and speak with him all day because I think he's just you know he's just he's got such a history prior to joining Google at running workload, like 10 to the seventh workloads and just some of the wisdom. And we talk about, you know, I can go about like ageism in tech, but like Rick is in his like, you know, fifth decade of work and just, just the wisdom that he could give us. So anyway, yeah, that was one of the things that really surprised me. The other thing in terms of like visual abstraction was speaking with Alan Donovan. Alan Donovan works at the Go team in New York City. And I was going to ask to give a talk at QCon about the why of Go. And it was asked rather last minute. So I was kind of like worrying a little bit. And I was like, what should I talk about? Um, and he said, oh, you should talk about memory locality. It's so important. And I was like, tell me more. Because I just had a fuzzy idea of what memory locality was. But he went on to talk about like how memory locality is, was, is way better than when Java invented it like 20, 25 years ago, right? So like you think about memory locality and he, he would talk about it in geospatial terms and geography, right? So it used to be just a, you know, a field, 
uh, a small, relatively flat Kansas field. But now you look at memory locality and it's like um, a Swiss mountain with a village down at the bottom and then a summit at the top and all these levels. And when you have to make, you know, calls to, to different parts of memory, it's like having to travel on foot either all the way down to the village, depending on how you've coded it, um, or being better about memory locality and just going, you know, 100 feet down the mountain on foot or 100 feet up. So just hearing about that helped me really kind of rock and understand data types, true value types, structs and things in Go and why memory locality was so important for Go and, and why even um, the people working on optimizing for that in the Go team, um, why that was important. And it, I needed metaphors and something tangible to be able to relate to, to grow my mental model of that, my Kopf keynote of that. So those, those are two of the main the most delightful ones I've heard. I've heard many more, but those those are two of the ones that I really enjoyed and that have helped me kind of frame my way of looking and thinking about those very two very hard things. Wow. I'm really glad that somebody thinks about those really hard things because they're things that I don't want to think about. I want to think about solving problems and getting things done and I'm really grateful for the people who are visualizing chessboards and mountains because I don't have to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's probably one of the things that um, kind of, yeah, like that's probably a barrier to why I haven't learned languages before. So like I remember caring about like in, in C, right? Like what is include SDD? stdio.h why do why do we need that why do we need void why do we need like instead of just having to ignore it and just push through and then maybe go to learn it later i wanted to know every single thing sequentially and dive down into these you know dev holes and sometimes that meant that i wasn't staying on the path but <laughs> i am who i am and <laughs> i really like talking about such things you got to embrace that you have to <laughs> you know the thing that i love about technology and and learning and doing things is connecting things that really don't belong connected together. Mm. And I've, I've found some of the most fun projects I've ever done have been, you know, bringing two projects that have nothing to do with each other, nor really any business belonging together and putting them together and see what happens. It's, it's tons of fun. Yeah. That's, that's my thing. I get that. I know it. I love it. Very cool. Sometimes it's peanut butter and chocolate, and sometimes it's peanut butter and pineapples. Ooh, I'll have to try the pineapple peanut butter one. You, you, let me know how it goes. Hey, <laughs> ice cream on toast. Mm. Ice cream on toast. I'll try it. It's awesome. My mother had an uncle that used to put ketchup on ice cream. Oh. Mm. Yeah. No, I'm noping out of that one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a little far. Oh. <laughs> uh. And speaking of um, visualization, a lot of people learn better by kind of seeing things visualized out rather than kind of reading words and trying to come up with their own like mental visualization of it. Um, and uh, a really cool one from two years ago at GopherCon, Ivan Danny Luke did one um, on visualizing concurrency. In oh, Canada. yes. My favorite talk. Epic. Mm-hmm. That's out on YouTube. If, if you haven't seen it yet, it is well worth the time to watch that. It was so cool watching the Go routines fly across the screen with visualizations. It was amazing. Oh, look, and somebody just dropped a link in Slack. Good job, Eric. 
Right on. Yeah, it helps me understand like fan out, fan in worker patterns um, and other the all the other sort of like well versed patterns um, for concurrency. That was like, oh, so that's what that is. It was amazing. Oh, that. <laughs> well, this is just the best conversation ever, but the clock is ticking. So we should probably move on to go projects and news unless there's something anybody else wants to get in real quick. That's Crazy. How did it end so fast? <laughs> right. Just like the best movies ever, you know, they end and you don't even notice it. <laughs> this makes no sense. Time flies and you're having lovely conversation. Yes. So who wants to kick us off with some interesting news? Uh, as far as interesting news, I don't know whether there's any, been anything news-wise that I recall the last week there has been some interesting um projects that i found fire them up let's see so the first one is from google cloud platform on github and it's called scaffold spelled with s-k-a-f-f-o-l-d and um, it looks like a way to be able to build and deploy your applications that you're developing locally um, I haven't dug too far deep into it, but it looks like it might be akin to um, Draft. That was the impression I got. It was it was Draft without a server-side component, without a cluster-side piece. And if anybody has actually had a chance to play with this, like I would, I'd love to talk to them because I don't know whether I'll have time to set it up and play with it, but I'd love to hear feedback from anybody who has. Yeah, plus one on that. So my big find of the week, oh my gosh. I'm such a geek. Slack term at github.com slash erroneous boat slash Slack term. So awesome. Being in Slack, in the terminal, very nice. Much less memory use than the Electron client. Much less memory use than the Electron client. Much less Ooh, I'm hearing infinite echoes. Ooh. That was really cool. We should do that again. <laughs> that Much was less really cool. Use. Oh, we should do that again. That was <laughs> oh my God, there's so much echo right now. Oh my God. Uh, um, so as we know, like I love security stuff and I found two cool projects um, from the security standpoint. And I, I think it's really awesome to see the InfoSec community adopt and go a lot more too. Um, one is called uh, AMAS or AMAS, um, I'm not sure, but uh, C-A-F-F-I-X slash AMAS. Um, on GitHub, and it's for doing subdomain enumeration to be able to kind of brute force subdomains, and it's supposed to have a little bit of machine learning um, to guess, and it goes out to multiple um, public DNS servers so that, you know, all the DNS uh, queries aren't coming from a single IP address. And the other one I found is one called BetterCap, so github.com slash BetterCap slash BetterCap. And this looks like a, they call it a Swiss Army knife library, but it's uh, a lot of networking stuff. So you can kind of, um, you can snoop Bluetooth low energy packets and Wi-Fi beacon frames and uh, do different types of stuff, um, ARP spoofing, DNS spoofing, um, all that good stuff. And it, it looks pretty slick. I don't know, you just said a bunch of things that made absolutely no sense to me, but yeah, you go with your bad self. <laughs> Spoof this. So, Jess Fraz released uh, 
IMG, which has got to be one of the coolest projects out there uh, I've seen in a long time. It's a standalone, demonless, unprivileged Docker file and OCI compatible container image builder. And that's a lot of buzzwords and hype all in one. But the, the important part is that it's unprivileged Docker builder. So you can build uh, Docker containers without being root and without having a Docker daemon running as root. And if you translate that a little bit farther up the chain, it means you could have uh, Docker builders running in your Kubernetes cluster or somewhere else on the network for you unprivileged. And that's just going to be epic. That's going to be really cool. So another cool project, um, the GitHub username is BCICEN. I don't know whether that's pronounced a different way, but uh, the project's called GRMON, which is like a really cool way to visualize Go routines live. It, it shows you all your Go routines, the state that they're in, whether they're like blocking in a select or uh, receive, um, sit making syscalls, things like that. Shut up. That's awesome. Look at the picture. Oh, oh wow. Too bad this is radio because that picture is amazing. It's like top for your Go routines. Yeah, it's pretty slick. Wow. Oh, I'm impressed. That is super cool. Big, big, fat GitHub star on that one. Nice fun. Another new project from Peter Borgan is uh, CAS Paxos. Um, it's still kind of in its early phases, but he seems to be... Um, trying to implement that uh, replicated state machine white paper. And it's supposed to be leader. It's supposed to not have leadership election and things like that. And no logs, no log replication with that either. Right. Right. I haven't read the paper, but I do read Twitter and I play one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, another cool one is if you want to learn the guts of stuff, I'll link this um, in the show notes and in slack for anybody listening now but um i came across a primer on the um intermediate language um that go uses it's essentially the assembly language that the go compiler outputs um and kind of understanding that and that's super cool i haven't made it all the way through but i i did start um reading through it that looks really cool too and then lastly um, this is an article that was, I found on Dev2, and uh, there's this company that has released some games in Go. They've listed a couple of their names, Clock of Atonement and Bluebird of Happiness. But the interesting part about it is they list out all of um, kind of the OpenGL wrappers and MP3 libraries and things like that that they use to create their, their games. So if you want to play around with doing some game development in Go, that's probably not a bad place to start. Very cool. I'm still looking at the GRMon thing. Sorry, you lost me with the pretty visualizations of my Go routines. In two more minutes, I'm going to be compiling something and looking at the Go routines as they work. You know what we should do? Oh my God, you guys. Oh my God. All right, first person who instruments the Go tool itself with GRMon and puts a video of it running up on YouTube or a blog gets a hand knitted hat. I got to see the Go tool itself, instrumented with GRMon, running a Go installation or a compile, something large enough where it actually makes sense. That would be really cool. You get a custom 
hand knitted Brian Kettleson hat, which, you know, as we all know, has unmeasurable intrinsic value. Priceless. Exactly. Carmen, are you on my hat list? Now I am. You are now. Right, right, right. What colors right? do you prefer? Surprise me. I'll, I'll, I'll pull up my Trello right now. It's huge, Ooh, though. So There's like 45 <laughs> hats in the backlog. Get in line. Sure. I'm fine with that. Okay. All right. You're in. And I didn't have any more projects, but uh, one news item we did skip over is that the GopherCon CFP closes in one week. So if you would like a shot at speaking at GopherCon, now is the time, all you slackers. <laughs> all you slackers. Not slackers. These are the people who are are being very thoughtful about their approach to submitting a CFP. They're not slackers, Eric. They are some of deliberate. The, some of them are slackers. <laughs> They're deliberate. You need to use better inclusive language. They're deliberate. I would also like to mention that if you go to the golang.org um, site for speaker help, there are quite a few volunteers that will help you um, soundboard your CFP and prepare a CFP for submission. So make use of them if you want. Yes. Yeah. And a couple of us on there are part of the um, CFP review committee for GopherCon. Um, we do have enough people on our review team that if you approach only one of them, they will just avoid um, ranking your talk um, and it'll it'll get rated by, you know, the other is it 11, Nine. 14, yeah. 14 people a, that are there. A lot of people abstain kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they do the same thing if they submitted a proposal. They just don't review their own. Yeah. In the legal world, we'd call that recusing yourself, but mm. that doesn't. Apparently that doesn't mean anything anymore. So um, <laughs> come to go time for the go, stay for the politics. Mm, for the legalese. <laughs> All right. Should we skip Free Software Friday because we are uh, way over time now? Or do you want to sneak some in? Mm, I'm okay with skipping it this week. I don't think I have anything that I can think of off the top of my head this week. Okay. Anything else anybody wanted to mention before we wrap the show up? I will take that as a no. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Carmen. It's, it's been a blast and uh, eye-opening. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody else, for being on the show. Thank you to all of our listeners. Um, you can find us on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Uh, if you want to be on the show, have suggestions for guests or topics, um, file an issue on github.com slash GoTimeFM slash ping. And with that, uh, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Goodbye, Carmen. Awesome show. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye. And thank you, Carmen. Bye. All right. That's it for this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelog.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us. In real time during the shows, head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, Linode, we host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. GoTime is edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.